The Energy Gang is brought to you by Energetic Insurance. Energetic Insurance levels the solar playing field so project developers can offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were once reserved for the largest companies in the U.S. Their Enerate credit cover policy is an easy button for commercial solar. It's similar to a FICO score in residential solar, which has caused residential solar to boom, and this is going to help propel commercial solar. This enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects and turn around portfolio refinancings faster. Go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM to submit your projects today. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission-critical markets. Core Power designed its new energy storage system called the Mark One with best-in-class safety features. It's got all sorts of fancy things like integrated safety handles, concealed front panel covers, and module front display. It also offers market-leading energy density and helps lower installation and operation costs. They are now taking orders for deliveries beginning this spring. That's Core Power. Find out more at corepower.com. That is K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. This week, the moment when climate damage collided with corporate accounting. The world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, signed on to a climate pressure group saying that climate change is reshaping finance, and it plans to put sustainability and climate risk at the center of its investment strategy. Plus, activists are targeting banks like Chase and Citibank to hit them on the consumer finance side. We check in on the divestment movement as it gains momentum. Then a look at some lesser known but formidable greenhouse gases, refrigerants. How much of a problem are they? Finally, California looks beyond lithium-ion batteries. The state is uh, searching for the next ideas in energy storage. It's offering millions of dollars to get there. What are those technologies and how will they be deployed? I am here with my usual co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Both of them are not where they normally are. Catherine's there in Wisconsin. What are you doing in Wisconsin, Catherine? I'm going to be speaking at the Renew Wisconsin big symposium here. And right now I am looking out of my hotel room and I can see the capital of the state. Catherine is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. And uh, Jigger is with us. He's the president of Generate Capital. He's with us from Albany, New York, in the business center of the airport, a man on the go. What are you doing in Albany? I am meeting with one of our big clients, Plug Power. And uh, I've, I'm in I'm in this conference room that has four walls all around, no windows, and beautiful artwork on the walls. All right. A big news week uh, this week. The juiciest story is what's happening in the world of divestment. There are a couple of different stories playing out at the moment. The most pressing is this letter that uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink sent to investors. Every year, he sends this uh, major letter to shareholders and uh, investors and you know managers of funds that they invest in and explains what his thesis is. And he's never really talked about climate change, but this year was different. It was the first time that he talked about climate risk and didn't just mention it. He outright talked about it as 
central to BlackRock's uh, investment strategy going forward. This is important, of course, because BlackRock is the world's biggest investor. It has $7 trillion of assets under management. And um, so, so Larry Fink wrote this letter saying that climate change is almost invariably the top issue that clients around the world raise with BlackRock. And he's saying that the strategy going forward will mean that BlackRock assesses sustainability plans as part of its portfolio construction, as he says, um, and risk management. It's going to exit investments that present risk, and that means a lot of coal plants and potentially other fossil fuels. Uh, it's going to screen fossil fuel investments to assess that risk, and then they're going to strengthen their corporate-wide commitment to sustainability and transparency um, as it engages in this new investment strategy. So this is a big deal. And uh, it's got everyone talking now about corporate sustainability and divestment, issues that we have focused on for a long time, but a new group of people is taking notice now. So Jigger, just talk about BlackRock for a second. How big is this company and why does this decision matter? Yeah, to start, BlackRock is really an investment firm, but not in the way that you would think it is. Right. So if you run a pension fund, let's say it's got $70 million of assets in it. It's a lot of money. If you decide to do your own investing, it might cost you $4 million a year to do investing. You could imagine that would cripple the amount of money you could give to pensioners every year. So instead, you give it to BlackRock. You say, here are the instructions, and they charge you one-tenth of that amount to be your virtual CIO. Right? So they'll invest it in stocks and bonds and private equity and venture capital and all the different things that you want them to do, but they'll do it at one-tenth the cost. And now you're just a board of directors and you don't really have any employees at your pension fund. And so that's the service that BlackRock provides people, is that they allocate capital at their, at their wishes in ways that you know they want to do at a much lower cost to them than they could do by hiring all these investment professionals in-house. Okay, so what does that mean for embarking on like a, a climate change and sustainability strategy? Help, help us understand how one would operationalize it in that context. So that's the tricky part, right? Is so they can't really do a lot. And so what they've really announced is that for coal mining companies that are uh, something on the order of like 25% of their revenues is coming from thermal coal, sales, then they're going to divest from them, which is about $500 million. That's 0.0007% of their assets. So to put that in perspective, BlackRock has a $176 million position in Hannon Armstrong. And so it's like three divestments of like investments in things like Hannon Armstrong. And so it's not a large amount of money. Now, where this could go is they could have fossil fuel-free offerings that are crystal clear to their clients, where their clients can just click a button and go fossil fuel free. Now, that's interesting. Most of them won't click that button. But then now activists can actually go and go after all these pension funds and other investors that park their money at BlackRock and force them to click the mouse that says fossil fuel free, right? So it is hugely important. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is a huge watershed deal. But I just think, like, the notion that this is going to suddenly take 
17 billion dollars of finance out away away from coal or oil or gas is not what he announced one more logistical question and then i want to get Catherine's reaction to this letter so blackrock is a major shareholder in untold numbers of large companies and blackrock has resisted a lot of activist shareholder resolutions that would force companies to disclose their climate risk to take actions to think about divesting from fossil fuels. And now what Larry Fink seems to be saying in his letter is that we're going to support many of those efforts, even if we have blocked them in the past. So that to me feels very different, a a pretty major reversal and quite significant when we think about, you know, the governance of some of the world's largest companies that BlackRock invests in. Oh, totally. And I mean, I look, I think when the world's largest capitalist, I would say, is Larry Fink, Uh, says that, you know, as he said in his letter, um, I wrote it as a capitalist and my job as a capitalist is to help prepare our clients for the redistribution of capital and more importantly, to provide them with an investment portfolio that will outperform. I mean, that really is a mic drop, right? He's basically saying that if you don't invest with climate change in mind as your central theme, you're not going to outperform and your job is to outperform. And so start to realign capital. So from that perspective, it's useful. I, I think that the shareholder resolutions is a slippery slope. So we'll see which resolutions they actually back. I could see them backing transparency resolutions, but actually forcing companies to divest from fossil fuels like ExxonMobil or other people, that's a slippery slope. You can imagine BlackRock not wanting to get into all the other issues that are on balance, right? So parental leave policies, right? I mean, pension policies, like, you know, redistribution of wealth policies, whether people should be on B Corps. Like, there's all sorts of shareholder resolutions. And, you know, once they get too deep into this, then they might have to actually read and discuss all of them. Catherine, what jumped out at you when you read Larry Fink's letter? Yeah, it really did indicate that this has become an investment decision for them. So of course, you would prefer that the carbon free to be the default, not the button that you choose. But to put a little perspective on it, in 2014, the commitments to divest were of assets under management were is at $52 billion. And in five years, it has gone up to 11 trillion. And that is in a world of between 80 and 100 trillion dollars worth of assets in total. So it is a big deal. And this signal, because they are so much bigger than any other asset managers, um, that is sending a really big signal. And it's becoming a much more sophisticated argument. And just to clarify that number, as I understand it, that's not $11 trillion in fossil fuel assets that companies are walking away from. That's total assets under management. And companies with that much money under management are agreeing to divest. Yes. Right? That's what I'm saying. That's okay. Yeah, that's right. That number is much, much bigger. And, you know, their total fossil fuel spend might be 1% of that amount of money. Okay. Um, One thing that I was thinking through with um, our senior editor, Ingrid, as we were framing this conversation is how do you define divestment? And Jigger, you you talked about the nuances of what BlackRock is doing here. And I think it's a little bit more confusing for folks. Uh, You know, I think we assume that, oh, BlackRock is just going to walk away from all fossil fuels really quickly. And I think that the definition of divestment is a little bit confusing. So when you think about what Larry Fink is talking about here, is the word divestment appropriate? Yeah, I think it is just because he's divesting from the coal miners, but just to maybe even 
put this in perspective going far back, right? So in 2012, Larry Fink did a TED interview. And in the interview, the interviewer asked him about climate change. And he was just like aghast that someone would even ask him about climate change. He's like, I don't deal with climate change, right? And so seven years later, all of these activists have been literally just pounding people. And you've now taken down Larry Fink, right? Larry Fink basically buckled under the pressure that was put on him. I think the notion that he did this for his investors or shareholders or whatever, I think is crap. I think he did this because the social license to invest in coal has gone away. And by the way, he didn't extend this to oil and gas. It's really just coal. And it's not coal burning utilities like AXA Insurance and some other people have done. It's only coal miners, right? And so so he is divesting from coal miners. But like I said, it's a small number. And, you know, and, and we can argue about whether divestment of equity is actually even that important. Catherine, this brings me to a central question that I want to answer. And that is, what is the role of activism versus just the reality of finance and the financial performance of these fossil fuel assets and climate risk? Now, if you talk to activists, I know you've, you've talked to a number of folks on the environmental side and activist side for this segment. If you talk to them, they would agree with Jigger that it is this social pressure and activist pressure and protests that are causing people like Larry Fink to change their strategy. If you you know, read Larry's letter, he does mention protests and he does actually flag that social pressure had an influence. But, you know, if you listen to his interviews, he explicitly says, we're doing this because we think it makes financial sense. And I wonder what you think. How much of this has to do with that pressure campaign and how much of this has to do with just a business decision? Yeah, so I talked to Tamara Tolzo-Laughlin, who is with 350.org, and Justin Gway, who is with the Sunrise Project, not to be confused with the Sunrise Movement. And they both have really sophisticated understanding of the role of activism. Yes, it has made a big difference. It started small and it's increased over time and has been sustained. There still needs to be a shift so that there's a connection of the dots of the activists and the really kind of wonky discussions about money and where it goes. Um, But it has made a huge difference. 2019 was the largest year, and they believe 2020 is going to be even better, bigger, of the number of policies. These are voluntary corporate-level policies on divestment. And 50% of those are new policies, but 50% of those are revisions of policies that corporations say, you know what, we need to get beyond the check the box exercise. And maybe some of the policies that we put in place aren't really working. So let's revise them. So they said that is just as important as the new policies being put into place. And so kind of the next frontier is for financial regulators to say, all right, we need to rein in reckless activity that climate change has a huge impact on. And if you continue to invest in these assets, you are causing risk to your investors. So it can it goes from really grassroots activism, which has been critical to very sophisticated policy decisions. So let's turn our attention now to another major piece of divestment news that has played out over the last couple of weeks. Um, last Friday, almost 150 people were arrested in Washington, D.C. Uh, as part of this climate protest focus on financial institutions. Bill McKibben was there. A bunch of people like Lennox Yearwood from the Hip Hop Caucus was there. A lot of the 
you know, folks that we know from the activist environmental movement have been engaged in this new form of divestment. And that is to strip the social license of big banks with consumer finance arms that are offering debt financing to coal plants, to oil and gas drilling, and to Arctic drilling. And uh, Bill McKibben described this new campaign in a recent interview with uh, David Gelber, the co-host of Climate 2020. That's a show that we recently started working on. And um, McKibben described how these activists, they don't think that, you know, cutting up credit cards and, and, you know, filling up bank branches is going to somehow shift the the financial calculus of these companies. But what it can do is, again, strip their social license and worry them from a PR perspective and perhaps start to push them in a different direction. Here's how he described that movement to David Gelber. Bill, I can I can imagine, even as we speak, there are bankers sitting around a conference room at J.P. Morgan Chase, and there's somebody in that room who's saying, uh, you know, this McKibben and his pals, they're just a pain in the ass, but they can't really hurt us that much. I mean, let's say that, you know, 10,000 people cut their chase cards. Well, so what? I mean, that's not going to hurt us. We get, we're, we're, we're making a thousand times more money every day than we do on, on lending money to uh, retail customers. So what gives you the confidence that we are capable, that our side in this debate is capable of generating the kind of pressure that would actually move J.P. Morgan Chase? I'm never confident, but I'm always hopeful. And if it's only 10,000 people, then it won't matter. We'll need a lot of people willing to cut up their credit cards and move their bank accounts. And we'll need a lot of people willing to go and protest in the lobbies of the 5,000 Chase branches across America. I think we can get people of conscience working hard here. And I think that as they do, it'll become a growing threat to these banks, to Chase and Citi and Wells Fargo and Bank of America and to BlackRock and to the insurance companies like, you know, AIG and things. And I think the reason is they don't want young people identifying them as the source of the greatest crisis the world faces. Uh, they spend a lot of money trying to make their brands look pretty, trying to appeal to the new generations of consumers that are always coming online. If the Greta generation takes one look at them and thinks, these guys are disgusting, well, that's pretty much the opposite of what their brand teams are interested in. So again, that's McKibben talking to David Gelber of the podcast Climate 2020. Uh, Catherine, what's going on here? Uh, you focused a lot in your conversations with environmental groups on this piece of the divestment movement. How is this unfolding and what are they trying to do? Yeah, so it's really important um, for consumers to drive like more on the retail side, like ask those questions, the hard questions about where their money is going. I've personally been trying to figure this out with my own like retirement accounts, and it is so hard to get information. And even going to people who are financial managers to, to ask them questions, they're like, yeah, I guess we could look at that for you, the sustainability. So keeping the pressure on is really, really important. But I think reputational, as you said, reputational um, 
issues are a big driver with those institutions. But I also think, and I'd love to hear Jigger's uh, thoughts on this too, is like, there's a lot of projects on the book. There's a lot of debt out there and a lot of leases signed for projects that aren't even built yet. I want to get Jigger's take as well, but let's run through some of the numbers uh, that you sent over. These numbers do come from the environmental groups. So we haven't been able to uh, fact check them. But according to their tally, J.P. Morgan Chase lent uh, over $195 billion to oil and gas companies. Wells Fargo lent over $151 billion. Citibank lent over $129 billion. Bank of America over $106 billion to oil and gas companies. So, you know, there's a substantial amount of activity here. And again, uh, cutting up credit cards, getting rid of your checking accounts, that's not going to have an impact. But the idea is to create that atmosphere of pressure. So, Jigger, tell us a little bit more about the activity of these companies in supporting these projects. Yeah, I just think that at times we tend to blend some of this stuff together. And I'd say that when you say fossil fuels, I think what people mean is oil, gas, and coal. But I would say that most of these banks are pretty much moving away from coal investments. And they're not moving away from coal investments because of the social license, although that's interesting. They're mostly moving away from it because they're not sure that the coal plants are actually going to be allowed to run for 30 years. Right. So when you look at most of the coal plants that are getting built today, they're mostly in Asia. They're mostly being funded by the Chinese Development Bank, the Japanese Development Bank, the Korean Development Bank. And so these are not even being funded by the World Bank. These are sovereign countries that are they're funding them. And a lot of activists are going after them to stop them from funding it. But I don't think J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank and others are doing a lot in coal plant construction in mostly East Asia, but even in South Africa. And so so I think this is really more about oil and gas. And then the question really becomes, you know, I don't know that this is actually settled debate yet, right? So the vast majority of people that I talk to in the banking sector, they still think we need a lot of oil and gas. And so they're not just demurring from the conversation. They're actually positively interested in funding more oil and gas. Jigger brings up a really good point, which is like, how is this still continuing? So part of the big issue has been tracking all of this. There are about 300 small groups around the world, about 150 in the US that are really monitoring all these projects. The uh, Rainforest Action Network, RAN, has a fossil fuel finance report card. There's another group that has a global coal exit list uh, to really define what it means to divest. And so part of this is really getting to what is really happening in this and who is investing where and and how how can we track where the divestment is really occurring and it's very clear that all of these groups have hired people specifically to track this stuff because they see this as the lever to pull and i think that's probably the lever to pull if you're an activist it 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 really if you know outside of politics there's nothing happening interesting in politics right now so this is where you go and it looks like it's having an impact. I do want to quibble with what you said, Jigger, and that is you think that uh, on the debt finance side, it's it's just a matter of these companies seeing that they're, they're worried about how long these plants are going to run for. But then you also said that you think Larry Fink's decision is about the social pressure. So I'm trying to square those two things because it feels to me like it's a combination of both. I think the social pressure has succeeded in every way, shape, or form around coal. That's what I'm saying. 
and it has not succeeded on oil and gas. People are not afraid of gas. I mean, think about it. Germany is still building a, like a special sort of delivery vehicle from, um, from Russia to get more gas into the country, right? People are still building, building LNG terminals. People are building LNG export vehicles, right? There's you know, tons of people installing new natural gas facilities in Texas and California right now. And so I just think that when you think about where this money is going, from the banks, JP Morgan, Citibank, etc., it's mostly going into oil and gas. It's not going into coal. They get the fact that they can't touch coal anymore, but they are not they're not even like embarrassed by their investments in oil and gas. Now, some of those investments have gone down, right? So there's lots of data that shows that people who divested from oil and gas in 2013-2014 did really well because oil and gas has been doing really poorly from a stock perspective since then. But that's because oil prices have been very volatile. They went up and then they came back down. And then, you know, uh, unconventional uh, ways of getting oil like the tar sands in Alberta or the fracking in the Permian Basin or deep sea drilling is expensive. You know, Chevron is paying roughly 50 bucks a, a barrel just to just to access the oil. And then if it's only selling for $55, not making a lot of money. And so they're not doing well financially. But I'm just saying the social license hasn't gone away for oil and gas. Yeah, and there's a difference between the active portfolio, which is what has been committed on the divestment side, versus the passives problem, all these index funds where you don't really, you know, this money's being invested and you don't really know where it's going. And I think part of this is that there's this really serious market demand for new products. And I think that's what we're going to see. So there's on the, you know, on the grassroots front, you're getting a lot of pressure, but then you're also getting a pull from the market saying, all right, well, then give us new products so that we can start shifting other types of investments. Let's take a quick pause in the conversation to talk about our supporters of this show. So if you're looking to get your money out of fossil fuel assets and get into solar, Commercial solar might be a place to look, but, you know, there are some risks as well if you're developing a portfolio approach. Enter energetic insurance. As anyone in solar knows, operating solar portfolios are only as valuable as their underlying off-taker credit profiles. And in commercial solar, the shifting credit tied to these PPAs is a huge risk to portfolio returns and valuation. So energetic insurance transfers this credit risk to a highly rated insurer, and it gives developers and investors the confidence and certainty of cash flows required to unlock institutional capital. The Enerate credit cover is this easy-to-understand insurance that enables financing for unrated or below investment-grade corporate off-takers by covering payment default risk. If you want a fast and easy way to provide a highly rated credit backstop to your portfolio, go to energeticinsurance.com GTM and submit your projects today. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage solutions. It's taking orders now for their six gigawatt hours of capacity available in 2020. Core Power is based in the U.S. and it is perfectly situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. Core Power is planning to build a new battery manufacturing plant right here in the U.S. and the one million square foot facility is going to have 10 gigawatt hours of capacity 
And the facility will leverage a cogeneration plant, too, to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid. Uh, Core Power is going to be announcing this new site in 2020, so stay tuned. And uh, Core Power is your partner for battery storage for renewable energy in order to build tomorrow's grid. Learn more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. Everyone is worried about hidden methane leaks from natural gas. It's a topic we've extensively talked about here on the show. But there's another hidden climate threat that packs an even greater warming punch. The gas that gets used for refrigerant in air conditioners and heat pumps. Refrigerants are amazingly useful because they can absorb heat super fast from a space like your car or your living room and then transport it away and dump it somewhere else. But in your air conditioner or heat pump, it has to be kept under pressure and sometimes it leaks out. And that can be a problem, particularly for industrial operations or for grocers. You know, there's infrastructure where a lot of these refrigerants can actually leak out and that could cause a problem for the climate. And that's what we want to talk about. So these refrigerants are more than a thousand to two thousand times worse than carbon dioxide, ounce for ounce, when they leak. Regulators know about this, and they've been tightening access to little cans of refrigerant. The Paris Agreement addresses them, and the House Energy and Commerce Committee is now working on the issue as well. It's a rare case of bipartisan support. Um, so, Jigger, let's talk about the problem. How much of an issue is this when we look across, you know, industrial facilities, grocery stores, down to consumer heat pumps? How much should we be worried about this, these leaks? I think it's a huge problem. Um, I don't think it's actually related to heat pumps, frankly. It's just related to refrigerants more broadly. And there is a big movement around alternative refrigerants, right? Natural refrigerants, like so people can now use CO2 and, you know, propane and butane and other things as refrigerants. But in general, right, I mean, Project Drawdown says that refrigerants are the worst polluter to climate change, right? And we had this whole agreement in Kigali and, you know, we basically are trying to get at how we stop venting accidentally these refrigerants into the atmosphere that cause sometimes 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 times more greenhouse gas trapping impacts as, you know, CO2. Catherine, what is the history of regulating these refrigerants and where do things stand now? Yeah, so if you go back to our October 20th, 2016 Energy Gang episode, we discussed this in detail, the Kigali Amendment. So in 1987, during the Reagan era, there was a Montreal protocol to deal with CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, which were depleting the ozone in our atmosphere. It was incredibly effective, and we stopped it. And we shifted from CFCs to HFCs, which are hydrofluorocarbons, which were cleaner than CFCs. This was like the bridge from coal to gas. But they still are bad as you said, thousands of times potentially worse than CO2. So what do we do now? We had this Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol that was introduced and was just signed by 72 nations in January of 2019, but the Trump administration has refused to sign it and send it to Congress. So what Congress is trying to do now is to say, all right, well, why don't we try to at least align ourselves with Kigali? Because this is something everybody wants. It's It should be bipartisan. The refrigeration industry wants it. The chemical industry wants it. We have alternatives. We're losing ground to the EU and Asia because we're not in the mix right now. 
So so right now, the state of play for a policy is that Congress is now trying to actually create durable policy that would allow us to still maintain and align with the Kigali Amendment without having the president and the administration have to sign it. So, Catherine, if the industry wants this, why aren't they just doing it? Why do we need to codify it through Congress? Yeah, so the industry in some part is doing it. Uh, definitely, we are coming up with new solutions. As Jigger said, there, there are these things called hydrofluoroolefins. There's um, hydrocarbons for home re- uh, refrigeration. There's ammonia for industrial cooling. There's CO2 for supermarket refrigerators. There are all these technologies. But if we don't start um, lessening the ability of HFCs to be allowed in this country, what happens is that other nations that are complying with Kigali will dump, like China is, will dump their HFCs here in the U.S. So we just perpetuate the industry here. And it causes a huge amount of problem for us competitively, uh, globally. And so that's why all of the Alliance for Responsible Atmospheric Policy, which is all the chemical manufacturers like Lennox, Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute, like that Dan Foss is the head of the board on, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers. All these guys are saying, look, if we can just put this into law, then we can have 33,000 more manufacturing jobs. Our exports will increase by $5 billion. It'll improve our trade balance. Um, and it will allow us to maintain competitiveness because we are losing ground now. It, it does also cost money. Right. And so even though everybody wants to do the right thing, it, it there's a, you know, sort of a problem being the first to act on this because it makes the upfront cost on some of these heating and ventilation air conditioning systems more expensive, even though you save money over time. And so you can imagine that, like, you know, everybody wants to be regulated together as opposed to being forced to step out on their own. Yeah, but I also think that has been overstated. So the refrigerant piece of residential air conditioning is only 1% of the cost. So it actually wouldn't go much, up much for homeowners. So how much of this is tightening infrastructure, like making sure we don't leak, and how much of this is about just finding alternative refrigerants? It, it feels like going to the source and actually just changing the type of refrigerants we use would have the greatest impact. But we also need to make sure that we're not leaking as much through air conditioning and industrial refrigerators. Any thoughts on that, Jigger, on where we focus our attention? Well, I mean, both are an issue, but honestly, you really can't solve it without moving to natural refrigerants. Like, you really need to move to something that is um, not just 100 times worse than CO2, which is what they're proposing, but actually move to things that are only the same as CO2, right? Things like I was saying before, CO2 itself, propane, you know, uh, butane, et cetera. And so, um, but there are a lot of leaks, right? So the EPA under Order 608 has issued huge fines to Winn-Dixie, Aldi, other grocery store chains in particular that seem to have really old equipment and a lot of leaks. And, you know, Order 608 basically says that if you have a leak, you got to report it and you got to, like, fix it within 30 days. And there's a lot of grocery store chains that, frankly, didn't even know they had leaks, so they couldn't report it. And then they clearly didn't fix it within 30 days. And so they're starting to get fined. And I think that's important because, I mean, I've heard personally from many grocery store chains who've asked Generate Capital whether we would invest in helping them convert their HVAC infrastructure to these natural refrigerants just to be done with it and just to be like done with the liability. 
So, Catherine, wrapping this up, is this going to be a rare good news story out of Congress? I'm actually surprised that there's this much bipartisan support for this kind of regulation. Oh, don't you wish? Um, yes, there is bipartisan support for on the bill sponsors. And so, you know, the bill is very flexible. It's not a ban. There's a phase down schedule. Um, there's, uh, there's a section on recovering re- reusable chemicals and reducing leaks uh, during service and disposal, which we talked about, and a transition to safer alternatives. And all of these industry groups are aligned. There are Republicans aligned. And yet, in the energy and commerce hearing, the Republicans are not ready to support this. And they had a witness from competitive uh, Enterprise Institute, who basically was saying, you know, like, let the states do what they want, let the states have a preemption, um, let the consumer decide, you know, if the consumer wants something more environmentally friendly, then just put a sticker on it, and they'll buy it. And that whole argument, that free market argument, which belies the issue that, you know, we have a government that is supposed to protect the health and welfare of our citizenry, um, is still out there. And so I still think, I mean, it would pass the House of Representatives, but the Senate would still be a problem because Republicans are still not willing to do anything that looks at all like the government trying to step in and protect us from climate impacts. Well, I was teeing you up for some optimism there, but looks like we're not going to get any. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us into the last topic. Let's talk about California and the future of storage there. So California, as we know, is the leader in procuring batteries for grid services, and now it wants to broaden that to a wider range of storage technologies. So far, 95% of new battery storage industry-wide is lithium-ion. But lithium-ion, of course, has plenty of limitations, as we've reported here at GTM. Most crucially, they aren't great for long-duration storage. Batteries are, of course, getting denser and cheaper. So, you know, lithium-ion can be extended, but there are definitely limitations in what you can do with those batteries. And we need longer-duration storage for diurnal and seasonal variability on grids that are saturated with wind and solar. And California has those needs now. Um, So California is inviting providers of non-lithium-ion storage to compete for grants. This is through the California Energy Commission. And it wants to know what else out there can compete with these batteries. There's $9 million to give away, plus a couple more million for green hydrogen. So uh, what is out there? Catherine, how important is this procurement? It's small. It's not that much money. But what are they trying to do here? Yeah, so they actually are trying to tackle the fact that they're going to be looking at deep decarbonization and need some affordable, reliable alternatives, that they're going to need some multi-day reliability, and that they are going to need to retire existing gas plants. And lithium-ion, which has been very good at frequency regulation and demand response, um, is just not going to be able to serve those needs. So they're looking out and saying, all right, well, what what is going to work? What what else is out there? Is it going to be flow batteries? Is it going to be some other type of chemistry? Is it going to be hydrogen? And like, let's see if it if we can make bring down the cost and make it affordable under a whole set of different applications and use cases that we need in this state as we move forward. Jigger, let's talk about the program structure first. Um, you know, I would assume that Generate Capital would consider investing in projects um, that would participate in in this kind of procurement. So what kind of activity do you imagine it spurring? 
So I don't know that this particular RFP is, you know, anything special. It's the same as what the CEC does for solar thermal or industrial heat or all sorts of microgrid projects that they fund, et cetera. So they award a solicitation, you know, they tell people, give us your best ideas. They give the best ideas a grant that usually pays for up to 50% of the project. And then someone like Generate would put up the other 50% of the money. But I think that the the broader challenge, I think, is that is twofold. One is that lithium-ion batteries might be actually enough to solve all the problems, first of all, because under the new net metering rules in California, for instance, batteries are basically going to become mandatory for all new solar systems. And so not by statute, but just because solar is only going to get like five cents a kilowatt hour during the day, and then sort of during the duck curve is when they get you know, 26 cents a kilowatt hour. So you could imagine lots of people putting in battery storage for that. And so part of this to me is California continuing to shirk its responsibility to figure out how to use all those batteries. How do you pay people who have residential, commercial, other types of batteries to participate in solving grid problems, right? Like I'm all for, you know, uh, vanadium redox batteries and and hydrogen production, as I've talked about a lot, or other types of things. But those are technology solutions. And California shouldn't be picking winners and losers on the technology side, which CEC is not. Their, their job is to do these sorts of pilot programs. But California should be setting up rules that, are, that reward people who have long-term storage. And today, they don't have any financial mechanism by which to reward people who put in long-term storage. Yeah, exactly. So there are two issues, as Jigger says. One is like access to markets and having mechanisms to compensate all these services that all kinds of storage can provide to the grid. That that just does not exist except for a very small amount of services. Um, I reached out to Form Energy that I work with a lot, and they're doing long-duration storage. And this is the perspective that they had. They said, look, new energy technologies take like 40 to 60 years to really reach commercial scale. And almost a, a, dec- a century for real dominance. So lithium-ion was in consumer products in 1979. So this is 40 years later. It now has parity with natural gas peaker plants. Uh, wind and solar, 1950s was originally out there. It's taken about 70 years for it to become dominant. So they're saying, look, if you really want to move long-duration storage, if you want to move new technologies, we need to scale a lot faster than that to meet the ne- the coming needs of the system of the future. So you need to scale in 20 to 30 years, not in you know 70 or 50 years to make it. And so they're looking at, like, we need some things that will really jumpstart this industry and get the technology out there. But the market side is just as important. So $9 million isn't much, but it seems to me to be important because this is structured to help companies with their pilot scale projects. And if you're a company coming out of, say, ARPA-E, or you've got government funding and you're developing something in a lab, this feels to me like an important bridge to get you to you know, uh, long-term bankability or to prove your, prove your technology actually works in the field. So while California may be lacking in providing an overarching market framework, this does feel like an important bridge for some companies that need that money to get into the field. Yeah, and if they can partner with utilities, that'll be crucial because the utilities are the ones who will be able to deploy. J- Jigger, what kind of technologies would California be assessing? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in general, you've, You've got all sorts of battery storage, right? So you've got everything from, as we talked about 
before vanadium redux batteries to um, you know physical storage, right? Remember we had that big announcement from SoftBank around Energy Vault. Uh, you have uh, compressed air energy storage uh, systems that people have been talking about for a long time. You've got electrolyzer solutions with hydrogen. And by the way, the CEC did an RFP on that last year and awarded three awards, of which I think one project is actually moving forward. And so there's actually lots of different approaches to uh, long-term or different type of storage. I mean, EOS has a you know new technology as well um, that they're pushing as well that Duke has agreed to deploy throughout North Carolina. Um, but I would just be cautious. Like This is just such a small amount of money. It doesn't really help all that much, right? It's a great fact-finding mission for California. But to really get deployment-led innovation, where you get the cost curves down like you've seen in lithium-ion, you actually need the kind of volumes lithium-ion has, has experienced. Okay, that's a good place to wrap it up. So let's go to our free electrons. So Jigger, when you get out of that windowless conference room, in the Albany airport and you go and talk to other passengers and want to just share some exciting news about your day or about what you're working on, what uh, free electron are you going to give them? So, you know, this last week, uh, New Jersey passed a pretty landmark bill to increase state-level incentives for uh, electric vehicles. Uh, It's $300 million, but it also includes a ton of EV chargers. Um, And so it's a really interesting new move. It also includes a mandate that requires New Jersey Transit to only purchase zero emission buses after, I think, 2032 and go all electric by 2040. And so some of these parts are maybe not as ambitious as I want it to be. But I'm, you know, I do think this electric vehicle push is coming. And um, it's good to see New Jersey continue to lead like they did in solar. Okay, Catherine, over to your free electron. When you walk out of your hotel room and you go down to that conference and start shaking hands and and talking to people, what are you going to share with them? What free electron are you going to give them? Yeah, so I just wanted to give them a shout out. So Renew Wisconsin does great work. Um, Wisconsin has been a little slow on renewables, um, but they are really ramping up. So They've gone from 130 uh, megawatts to 6,150 megawatts of solar in the MISO queue as of last August. Uh, wind from 737 megawatts to 1,196 megawatts. And their utilities and, and 421 megawatts of storage. This is all in the MISO queue just since last summer. So um, the utilities are starting to shift, some faster than others. There's one that I met with last night, Madison Gas and Electric, and I call them Modest Gas and Electric because they're like, yeah, no, you know, we're not, you know, we're just doing a little bit. But they're actually doing amazing things. They're very progressive. They have a program. They're getting a Renewable Energy Pioneers Award. They have a shared solar program that has been incredibly effective where they're building solar that everybody can kind of buy into from a community perspective, and, and, it, and it's very much accessible to all levels of income, and it will support the school district and the city of Middleton, Wisconsin. Um, So I feel like Wisconsin's really poised for some really good moves uh, this year. That's awesome. As somebody from the Midwest, it's great to see the Midwestern states taking leadership here. Well, my free electron is really a question to listeners, because I don't have the answer. And um, you know, I started toward the end of last year a food delivery service, like a lot of people. And because I have a new baby, I'm, I've am i got a business that I'm running, 
I love cooking, but I found it very difficult to cook. And even the ones that come, the food delivery services that send you the ingredients and have you cook, I've just found that my time is so limited. I wanted um, someone to send me pre-made meals, like good, you know, good, high-quality meals. So I found this service that I like, and I really like the food, and I do the vegetarian service. So it, it gives me a good diet, but also the food is delivered from... North Carolina. I can see the shipping. It's it's uh, made in a kitchen in like Greensboro, North Carolina, and then it's shipped up my way each week. And so I'm just trying to figure out like what what is the environmental calculus here? Like how how am I doing more damage to the environment by having someone ship me vegetarian meals, you know, from far away? Or am I doing some kind of net good because I'm cutting meat out of my diet and um, you know, using eating the right ingredients. And I have I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I can tell you that I'm going to probably continue using meal delivery because it just fits into my lifestyle right now. Um, but I, I'm just trying to figure out what the environmental harm versus the environmental good would be in this situation. Well, you're not alone, by the way. My wife and I just tried out the meal service this last week. Uh, it was pretty good, actually. It was a vegan service out of Ohio. So the one thing I would say is that Blue Apron, which I don't use, but uh, is pretty popular and I think they're publicly traded, they actually are starting to stock their meals in grocery stores. So then you don't have to um, have the whole footprint of shipping into your house and all that stuff. So, Unless you're like me who plans every single meal out on Sunday morning so that I know exactly what we're going to eat all week. Oh, Catherine, you're extraordinary though. <laughs> All right, we're going to call it there. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. We are a joint production between Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor, and I am the executive producer. Uh, we would love a rating review from you on Apple Podcasts. I just read that Spotify is now dominating Apple in downloads, and we can certainly see that in our number. The more and more of you are listening on Spotify. So if you are there uh you know share a spotify link with listeners more people are showing up on that platform thanks in advance if you want to send us some story ideas hit us up on twitter our messages are open on the energy gang or just uh, send us a public message and react to the show i am stephen lacy this is the energy gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy we'll catch you next week 